A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Barrett. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 6, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 49 louis the fourteenth and his court part one louis the fourteenth reigned everywhere over his people over his age often over europe but nowhere did he reign so completely as over his court never were the wishes the defects and the vices of a man so completely a law to other men as at the court of louis the fourteenth during the whole period of his long life when near to him, in the palace of Versailles, men lived and hoped and trembled. Everywhere else in France, even at Paris, men vegetated. The existence of the great lords was concentrated in the court, about the person of the king. Scarcely could the most important duties bring them to absent themselves for any time. They returned quickly, with alacrity, with ardor, only poverty or a certain rustic pride kept gentlemen in their provinces. Quote, the court does not make one happy, says La Bruyere. It prevents one from being so anywhere else. End quote. At the outset of his reign, and when, on the death of Cardinal Mazarin, he took the reins of power in hand, Louis the Fourteenth had resolved to establish about him, in his dominions and at his court, quote, that humble obedience on the part of subjects to those who are set over them, end quote, which he regarded as, quote, one of the most fundamental maxims of Christianity. Quote, as the principal hope for the reforms I contemplated establishing in my kingdom lay in my own will, says he in his memoir, the first step towards their foundation was to render my will quite absolute by a line of conduct which should induce submission and respect rendering justice scrupulously to any to whom I owed it, but as for favours, granting them freely and without constraint to any I pleased and when I pleased, provided that the sequel of my act showed that, for all my giving no reason to anybody, I was none the less guided by reason." The principle of absolute power, firmly fixed in the young king's mind, began to pervade his court from the time that he disgraced Fouquet and ceased to dissemble his affection for Mademoiselle de la Valliere. She was young, charming, and modest. Of all the king's favourites, she alone loved him sincerely. Quote, what a pity he is a king, she would say. Louis the Fourteenth made her a duchess, but all she cared about was to see him and please him. When Madame de Montespan began to supplant her in the king's favour, the grief of Madame de la Valliere was so great that she thought she should die of it. Then she turned to God, in penitence and despair. Twice she sought refuge in a convent at Chaillot. Quote, I should have left the court sooner, she sent word to the king on leaving, after having lost the honour of your good graces, if I could have prevailed upon myself never to see you again. That weakness was so strong in me that hardly now am I capable of making a sacrifice of it to God. After having given you all my youth, the rest of my life is not too much for the care of my salvation. The king still clung to her. Quote, 
he sent m colbert to beg her earnestly to come to versailles and that he might speak with her m colbert escorted her thither the king conversed for an hour with her and wept bitterly madame de montespan was there to meet her with open arms and tears in her eyes Quote, it is all incomprehensible adds madame de sevigny some will say that she will remain at versailles and at court others that she will return to chaillot we shall see madame de la valliere remained three years at court half penitent she said humbly detained there by the king's express wish in consequence of the tempers and jealousies of madame de montespan who felt herself judged and condemned by her rival's repentance attempts were made to turn madame de la valliere from her inclination for the carmelites Quote, madame said madame scarron to her one day here you are one blaze of gold have you really considered that at the carmelites before long you will have to wear a serge she however persisted she was already practising in secret the austerities of the convent Quote, god has laid in this heart the foundation of great things said bossuet who supported her in her conflict the world puts great hindrances in her way and god great mercies i have hopes that god will prevail the uprightness of her heart will carry everything Quote, when i am in trouble at the carmelites said madame de la valliere as at last she quitted the court i will think of what those people have made me suffer Quote, the world itself makes us sick of the world said bossuet in the sermon he preached on the day of her taking the dress its attractions have enough of illusion its favours enough of inconstancy its rebuffs enough of bitterness there is enough of injustice and perfidy in the dealings of men enough of unevenness and capriciousness in their intractable and contradictory humours there is enough of it all without doubt to disgust us Quote, she was dead to me the day she entered the carmelites said the king thirty-five years later when the modest and fervent nun expired at last in seventeen ten at her convent without having ever relaxed the severities of her penance he had married the daughter she had given him to the prince of conti Quote, everybody has been to pay compliments to this saintly carmelite says madame de sevigny without appearing to perceive the singularity of the alliance between words and ideas i was there too with mademoiselle the prince of conti detained her in the parlour what an angel appeared to me at last she had to my eyes all the charms we had seen heretofore i did not find her either puffy or sallow she is less thin though and more happy-looking she has those same eyes of hers and the same expression austerity bad living and little sleep have not made them hollow or dull that singular dress takes away nothing of the easy grace and easy bearing as for modesty she is no grander than when she presented to the world a princess of conti but that is enough for a carmelite in real truth this dress and this retirement are a great dignity for her the king never saw her again but it was at her side that madame de montespan in her turn forced to quit the court went to seek advice and pious consolation quote, this soul will be a miracle of grace bossuet had said it was no longer the time of quote, this tiny violet that hides itself in the grass as madame de sevigny used to remark madame de montespan was haughty passionate quote, with hair dressed in a thousand ringlets a majestic beauty to show off to the ambassadors 
she openly paraded the favour she was in accepting and angling for the graces the king was pleased to do her and hers having the superintendence of the household of the queen whom she insulted without disguise to the extent of wounding the king himself Quote, pray consider that she is your mistress he said one day to his favourite the scandal was great bossuet attempted the task of stopping it it was the time of the jubilee neither the king nor madame de montespan had lost all religious feeling the wrath of god and the refusal of the sacraments had terrors for them still madame de montespan left the court after some stormy scenes the king set out for flanders quote, pluck this sin from your heart sir bossuet wrote to him and not only this sin but the cause of it go even to the root in your triumphant march amongst the people whom you constrain to recognize your might would you consider yourself secure of a rebel fortress if your enemy still had influence there we hear of nothing but the magnificence of your troops of what they are capable under your leadership and as for me sir i think in my secret heart of a war far more important of a far more difficult victory which god holds out before you what would it avail you to be dreaded and victorious without when you are vanquished and captive within Quote, pray god for me wrote the bishop at the same time to marshal belfond pray him to deliver me from the greatest burden man can have to bear or to quench all that is man in me that i may act for him only thank god i have never yet thought during the whole course of this business of my belonging to the world but that is not all what is wanted is to be a saint ambrose a true man of god a man of that other life a man in whom everything should speak with whom all his words should be oracles of the holy spirit all his conduct celestial pray pray i do beseech you at the bottom of his soul and in the innermost sanctuary of his conscience bossuet felt his weakness he saw the apostolic severance from the world the apostolic zeal and fervour required for the holy crusade he had undertaken Quote, your majesty has given your promise to god and the world he wrote to louis the fourteenth in ignorance of the secret correspondence still kept up between the king and madame de montespan i have been to see her added the prelate i find her pretty calm she occupies herself a great deal in good works i spoke to her as well as to you the words in which god commands us to give him our whole heart they caused her to shed many tears may it please god to fix these truths in the bottom of both your hearts and accomplish his work in order that so many tears so much violence so many strains that you have put upon yourselves may not be fruitless the king was on the road back to versailles madame de montespan was to return thither also her duties required her to do so it was said bossuet heard of it he did not for a single instant delude himself as to the emptiness of the king's promises and of his own hopes he determined however to visit the king at luzarches louis the fourteenth gave him no time to speak Quote, do not say a word to me sir said he not without blushing do not say a word i have given my orders they will have to be executed bossuet held his tongue Quote, he had tried every thrust had acted like a pontiff of the earliest times with a freedom worthy of the earliest ages and the earliest bishops of the church says saint simon he saw the inutility of his efforts 
henceforth prudence and courtly behaviour put a seal upon his lips it was the time of the great king's omnipotence and highest splendour the time when nobody withstood his wishes the great mademoiselle had just attempted to show her independence tired of not being married with a curse on the greatness which kept her a strand she had made up her mind to a love-match guess it in four guess it in ten guess it in a hundred wrote madame de sevigne to madame de coulanges you are not near it well then you must be told m de lauzun is to marry on sunday at the louvre with the king's permission mademoiselle mademoiselle de mademoiselle guess the name he is to marry mademoiselle my word upon my word my sacred word mademoiselle the great mademoiselle mademoiselle daughter of the late monsieur mademoiselle granddaughter of henry the fourth mademoiselle de mademoiselle de dombe mademoiselle de montpensier mademoiselle d'orleans mademoiselle cousin german to the king mademoiselle destined to the throne mademoiselle the only match in france who would have been worthy of monsieur the astonishment was somewhat premature mademoiselle did not espouse lauzun just then the king broke off the marriage quote, i will make you so great he said to lauzun that you shall have no cause to regret what i am taking from you meanwhile i make you duke and peer and marshal of france quote, sir broke in lauzun insolently you have made so many dukes that it is no longer an honour to be one and as for the baton of marshal of france your majesty can give it me when i have earned it by my services he was before long sent to pignerol where he passed ten years there he met fouquet and that mysterious personage called the iron mask whose name has not yet been discovered to a certainty by means of all the most ingenious conjectures it was only by settling all her property on the duke of maine after herself that mademoiselle purchased lauzun's release the king had given his post to the prince of marciac son of la rochefoucauld he at the same time overwhelmed marshal belfond with kindnesses Quote, he sent for him into his study says madame de sevigne and said to him marshal i want to know why you are anxious to leave me is it a devout feeling is it a desire for retirement is it the pressure of your debts if the last i shall be glad to set it right and enter into the details of your affairs the marshal was sensibly touched by this kindness sir said he it is my debts i am over head and ears i cannot see the consequences borne by some of my friends who have assisted me and whom i cannot pay well said the king they must have security for what is owing to them i will give you a hundred thousand francs on your house at versailles and a patent of retainder note brevet de retenue whereby the emoluments of a post were not lost to the holder's estate by his death End of note. for four hundred thousand francs which will serve as a policy of assurance if you should die that being so you will stay in my service in truth one must have a very hard heart not to obey a master who enters with so much kindness into the interests of one of his domestics accordingly the marshal made no objection and here he is in his place again and loaded with benefits 
the king entered benevolently into the affairs of a marshal of France. He paid his debts, and the marshal was his domestic. All the court had come to that. The duties which brought servants in proximity to the king's person were eagerly sought after by the greatest lords. Bontemps, his chief valet, and Fagon, his physician, as well as his surgeon Marachal, very excellent men, too, were all powerful amongst the courtiers. Louis the Fourteenth had possessed the art of making his slightest favours prized. To hold the candlestick at bedtime, or au petit coucher, to make one in the trips to Merly, to play in the king's own game, such was the ambition of the most distinguished. The possessors of grand historic castles, of fine houses at Paris, crowded together in attics at Versailles, too happy to obtain a lodging in the palace. The whole mind of the greatest personages, his favourites at the head, was set upon devising means of pleasing the king. Madame de Montespan had pictures painted in miniature of all the towns he had taken in Holland. They were made into a book which was worth four thousand pistoles, and of which Racine and Boileau wrote the text. People of tact, like M. de Langlais, paid court to the master through those whom he loved. Quote, M. de Langlais has given Madame de Montespan a dress of the most divine material ever imagined. The fairies did this work in secret. No living soul had any notion of it, and it seemed good to present it as mysteriously as it had been fashioned. Madame de Montespan's dressmaker brought her the dress she had ordered of him. He had made the body a ridiculous fit. There was shrieking and scolding, as you may suppose. The dressmaker said, all in a tremble, "'As time presses, madame, see if this other dress that I have here might not suit you, for lack of anything else.' "'Oh, what material! Does it come from heaven? There is none such on earth.' The body is tried on. It is a picture. The king comes in. The dressmaker says, "'Madame, it is made for you.' Everybody sees that it is a piece of gallantry, but on whose part? It is Langlais, says the king. It is Langlais. Of course, says Madame de Montespan. None but he could have devised such a device. It is Langlais. It is Langlais. Everybody repeats, it is Langlais. The echoes are agreed and say, it is Langlais. And as for me, my child, I tell you, to be in the fashion, it is Langlais. All the style of living at court was in accordance with the magnificence of the king and his courtiers. Colbert was beside himself at the sums the queen lavished on play. Madame de Montespan lost and won back four millions in one night at Bassette. Mademoiselle de Fontange gave away twenty thousand crowns worth of New Year's gifts. The king had just accomplished the Dauphin's marriage. Quote, he made immense presents on this occasion. There was certainly no need to despair, said Madame de Sévigné, though one does not happen to be his valet. It may happen that, whilst paying one's court, one will find oneself underneath what he showers around. One thing is certain, and that is, that away from him all services go for nothing. It used to be the contrary. All the court were of the same opinion as Madame de Sévigné. A new power was beginning to appear on the horizon with such modesty and backwardness that none could as yet discern it, least of all could the king. Madame de Montespan had looked out for someone to take care of and educate her children. She had thought of Madame Scarron. She considered her clever. She was so herself, quote, 
in that unique style which was peculiar to the Mortemart, said the Duke of Saint-Simon. She was fond of conversation. Madame Scarron had a reputation of being rather a blue-stocking. This the king did not like. Madame de Montespan had her way. Madame Scarron took charge of the children secretly and in an isolated house. She was attentive, careful, sensible. The king was struck with her devotion to the children entrusted to her. Quote, she can love, he said. It would be a pleasure to be loved by her. The confidence of Madame de Montespan went on increasing. Quote, the person of quality, Madame de Montespan, has no partnership with the person who has a cold, Madame Scarron, for she regards her as the confidential person. The lady who is at the head of all, the queen, does the same. She is, therefore, the soul of this court, writes Madame de Sévigné in 1680. There were, however, frequent storms. Madame de Montespan was jealous and haughty, and she grew uneasy at the nascent liking she observed in the king for the correct and shrewd judgment, the equable and firm temper, of his children's governess. The favour of which she was the object did not come from Madame de Montespan. The king had made the Parliament legitimise the Duke of Maine, Mademoiselle de Nantes, and the Count of Vexin. They were now formally installed at Versailles. Louis the Fourteenth often chatted with Madame Scarron. She had bought the estate of Maintenon out of the king's bounty. He made her take the title. The recollection of Scarron was displeasing to him. Quote, it is supposed that I am indebted for this present to Madame de Montespan, she wrote to Madame de Saint-Geran. I owe it to my little prince. The king was amusing himself with him one day, and being pleased with the manner with which he answered his questions, told him that he was a very sensible little fellow. I can't help being, said the child. I have by me a lady who is sense itself. Go and tell her, replied the king, that you will give her this evening a hundred thousand francs for your sugar-plums. The mother gets me into trouble with the king. The son makes my peace with him. I am never for two days together in the same situation, and I do not get accustomed to this sort of life. I, who thought I could make myself used to anything, she often spoke of leaving the court. Quote, As I tell you everything honestly, she wrote in 1675 to her confessor, Abbe Gobelin, I will not tell you that it is to serve God that I should like to leave the place where I am. I believe that I might work out my salvation here and elsewhere, but I see nothing to forbid us from thinking of our repose, and withdrawing from a position that vexes us every moment. I explained myself badly, if you understand me to mean that I am thinking of being a nun. I am too old for a change of condition, and according to the property I shall have, I shall look out for securing one full of tranquillity. In the world all reaction is towards God. In a convent all reaction is towards the world. There is one great reason. That of age comes next." She did not, however, leave the court except to take to the waters the little Duke of Maine, who had become a cripple after a series of violent convulsions. Quote, Never was anything more agreeable than the surprise which Madame de Maintenon gave the king, writes Madame de Sévigné to her daughter. He had not expected the Duke of Maine till the next day, when he saw him come walking into his room, and only holding by the hand of his governess. He was transported with joy. M. de Louvois, on her arrival, went to call upon Madame de Maintenon. She supped at Madame de Richelieu's, 
some kissing her hand, others her gown, and she making fun of them all if she is not much changed, but they say that she is." The king's pleasure in conversing with the governess became more marked every day. Madame de Montespan frequently burst out into bitter complaints. Quote, she reproaches me with her kindnesses, with her presence, with those of the king, and has told me that she fed me, and that I am strangling her. You know what the fact is. It is a strange thing that we cannot live together, and that we cannot separate. I love her, and I cannot persuade myself that she hates me." They found themselves alone together in one of the court carriages. Quote, "'Let us not be duped by such a thing as this,' said Madame de Montespan rudely. "'Let us talk as if we had no entanglements between us to arrange. It being understood, of course,' added she, "'that we resume our entanglements when we get back.' Quote, "'Madame de Maintenon accepted the proposal,' says Madame de Caillus, who tells the story, and they kept their word to the letter." Madame de Maintenon had taken a turn for preaching virtue. Quote, the king passed two hours in my closet, she wrote to Madame de Saint-Geran. He is the most amiable man in his kingdom. I spoke to him of Father Bourdaloue. He listened to me attentively. Perhaps he is not so far from thinking of his salvation as the court suppose. He has good sentiments and frequent reactions towards God. Quote, the star of Quanto, or Madame de Montespan, is paling writes Madame de Sévigné to her daughter. There are tears, natural pets, affected gaieties, poutings. In fact, my dear, all is coming to an end. People look, observe, imagine, believe that there are to be seen, as it were, rays of light upon faces which, a month ago, were thought to be unworthy of comparison with others. If Quanto had hidden her face with her cap at Easter in the year she returned to Paris, she would not be in the agitated state in which she now is. The spirit, indeed, was willing, but great is human weakness. One likes to make the most of a remnant of beauty. This is an economy which ruins rather than enriches. Quote, Madame de Montespan asks advice of me, said Madame de Maintenon. I speak to her of God, and she thinks I have some understanding with the king. I was present yesterday at a very animated conversation between them, I wondered at the king's patience, and at the rage of that vain creature. It all ended with these terrible words, I have told you already, madame, I will not be interfered with. Henceforth, madame de Montespan, quote-unquote, interfered with the king. He gave the new dauphiness madame de Maintenon as her mistress of the robes, quote, I am told, writes madame de Sévigné, that the king's conversations do nothing but increase and improve, that they last from six to ten o'clock, that the daughter-in-law goes occasionally to pay them a shortish visit, that they are found each in a big chair, and that when the visit is over, the talk is resumed. The lady is no longer accosted without awe and respect, and the ministers pay her the court which the rest do. No friend was ever so careful and attentive as the king is to her." She makes him acquainted with a perfectly new line of country, I mean the intercourse of friendship and conversation, without chicanery and without constraint. He appears to be charmed with it. Discreet and adroit as she was, and artificial without being false, Madame de Maintenon gloried in bringing back the king and the court to the ways of goodness. Quote, 
there is nothing so able as irreproachable conduct she used to say the king often went to see the queen the latter heaped attentions upon madame de maintenon Quote, the king never treated me more affectionately than he has since she had his ear the poor princess would say the dauphiness had just had a son the joy at court was excessive Quote, the king let anybody who pleased embrace him says the abbe de croisy he gave everybody his hand to kiss spinola in the warmth of his zeal bit his finger the king began to exclaim sir interrupted the other i ask your majesty's pardon but if i hadn't bitten you you would not have noticed me the lower orders seemed beside themselves they made bonfires of everything the porters and the swiss burned the poles of the chairs and even the floorings and wainscots intended for the great gallery Montan, in wrath ran and told the king who burst out laughing and said let them be we will have other floorings the least clear-sighted were beginning to discern the modest beams of a rising sun madame de montespan who had a taste for intellectual things had not long since recommended racine and boileau to the king to write a history of his reign they had been appointed historiographers Quote, when they had done some interesting piece says louis racine in his memoir they used to go and read it to the king at madame de montespan's madame de maintenon was generally present at the reading she according to boileau's account liked my father better than him and madame de montespan on the contrary liked boileau better than my father but they always paid their court jointly without any jealousy between them when madame de montespan would let fall some rather tart expressions my father and boileau though by no means sharp-sighted observed that the king without answering her looked with a smile at madame de maintenon who was seated opposite to him on a stool and who finally disappeared all at once from these meetings they met her in the gallery and asked her why she did not come any more to hear their readings she answered very coldly i am no longer admitted to those mysteries as they found a great deal of cleverness in her they were mortified and astonished at this their astonishment was very much greater than when the king being obliged to keep his bed sent for them with orders to bring what they had newly written of history and they saw as they went in madame de maintenon sitting in an armchair near the king's pillow chatting familiarly with his majesty they were just going to begin their reading when madame de montespan who had not been expected came in and after a few compliments to the king paid such long ones to madame de maintenon that the king to stop them told her to sit down as it would not be fair he added to read without you a work which you yourself ordered from this day the two historians paid their court to madame de maintenon as far as they knew how to do so the queen had died on the thirtieth of july sixteen eighty three piously and gently as she had lived Quote, this is the first sorrow she ever caused me said the king thus rendering homage in his superb and unconscious egotism to the patient virtue of the wife he had put to such cruel trials madame de maintenon was agitated but resolute Quote, madame de montespan has plunged into the deepest devoutness she wrote two months after the queen's death it is quite time she edified us as for me i no longer think of retiring her strong common sense and her far-sighted ambition far more than her virtue 
had secured her against rocks ahead. Henceforth she saw the goal, she was close upon it, she moved towards it with an even step. The king still looked in upon Madame de Montespan of an evening, on his way to the gaming-table. He only stayed an instant to pass on to Madame de Maintenon's. The latter had modestly refused to become lady in attendance upon the Dauphiness. She, however, accompanied the king on all his expeditions, quote, sending him away always afflicted, but never disheartened. Madame de Montespan, piqued to see that the king no longer thought of anybody but Madame de Maintenon, quote, said to him one day at Marly, writes Dango, that she has a favour to ask of him, which was to let her have the duty of entertaining the second carriage people and of amusing the antechamber. It required more than seven years of wrath and humiliation to make her resolve upon quitting the court in sixteen ninety one. End of chapter forty nine, part one.